All right, if you would turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, that's where we're going to be. That's where we left off. We're going to be here for a little while yet. We are again uh, continuing on with the spiritual blessings, the spiritual blessings that are ours, us who are in Christ. And today we're concluding with the final main, quote-unquote, in Christ blessing in this section of Ephesians 1. And just to recap again, we have looked at a total of five main in Christ texts thus far that mark those who are His. Including, one, how the Father has blessed us in Christ. Verse 3. Number two, how He chose us in Him. Verse 4. How the Father adopted us in the Beloved, in verses 5-6 through that we looked at. How for in Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 7. Of which, as a disclaimer, I wanted to mention when recapping about the week prior to last, about the purpose of redemption through His blood, which was to, quote, unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, unquote. Number one, as a slight oversight, when I was preaching last week in, a, in, in explaining clearly, especially with a newer dispensational view that's out there that has been popularized in the last 200 years or so, I, I could have clarified better when quoting Isaiah 2, 2-5, as an illustration of this uniting all things in him, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord, established as the highest of mountains with all nations flowing to it, is a present reality with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, who is ruling and reigning now, who is judging the nations now, who is building His church now with all authority given to Him in heaven and on earth now. This is not yet future. What is yet future is His kingdom growing to the point where nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, as, in, uh, as Isaiah 2.5 says. I had seemingly blanketed all of Isaiah 2, 2 to 5 with this, with this is yet future when my intention was to say that the nation no longer lifting up sword against nation is yet future. The tree, since the inception of that mustard seed of his kingdom, of Christ's kingdom, the tree is growing. Branches of that olive tree are constantly being grafted in Uh, as a result of His Word being proclaimed. Those who believe and their household. Number two, in explaining the present rule and uh, ruling and reigning of Christ at the right hand of the Father, I had paraphrased Hebrews 10, 12-13 in stating that He must, present tense, 
rule and reign until, quote, all his enemies are under his feet, unquote. But this is not entirely accurate and could be cause for confusion later, which uh, we want to avoid. It's important we understand that the Father has put all things under Jesus' feet, which we will see later in Ephesians 1.22. This includes Christ's enemies. Hebrews 10.12-13, however, if I had paraphrased it more accurately, would have said he must present tense rule and reign until, quote, his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, unquote. This is yet future. <clears throat> As uh, Hebrews 10, 12 to 13 clearly presupposes, which ties in with Isaiah's, Isaiah 2, 5's future nation, future, quote, nation shall no longer lift up sword against nation, which is certainly an indication that Jesus' enemies have been made a footstool for his feet when that happens. Or at the very least, it's an indication that the time for, quote, his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet is near completion when he returns to judge the living and the dead at the final judgment. That was a mouthful. I don't know if you followed me or not. But with that being said, and with my error in paraphrasing, is Jesus' enemies being made a footstool for his feet, technically still under his feet? Yes. But as I said, and of which Scripture attests to, it is not thoroughly accurate. As I said, the Father, past tense, has put all things under his feet. Ephesians 1.22, there's, there's clearly a difference in Scripture between all things authoritatively being under Jesus' feet and his enemies being made a footstool for his feet, which is a process that is currently underway. Uh, hopefully that clarifies some things. And there's my humble pie I get to eat for today. Uh, it, it, it's fairly minor, and had, I, and had I said nothing, it may have gone unnoticed, but let me for the record state the importance of Admitting slash confessing <clears throat> when we're wrong and or unclear, not only in our relationships with our spouses and children and the household of faith, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but especially in preaching God's word. We want to be clear about that. If you try to save face by trying to ignore such error, no matter how minor it is. We ought to remember Proverbs 28.13, which states, quote, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. <clears throat> These moments are humble, humbling, but I'm thankful for them as it drives me once again into fervent prayer to God for aid. <clears throat> now, fifthly, uh, following this recap of the week prior, we looked at verses 11 through 12, 
that spoke about how we who are in Christ have obtained an inheritance. In our subheadings, we looked at how we, present tense, have obtained an inheritance, the Father having predestined this. He predestined this. How this is a present reality. Yet according to verse 14, which we'll be looking at more closely today, we have also yet to acquire this inheritance. Now, how did, how did we reconcile these two verses last time? We, last time we discussed the three tenses of salvation. That is our justification in which we were slash are saved by faith in Christ alone. Freed from the guilt of sin. <clears throat> our sanctification where we are being saved. God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, conforming us to the image of Christ, freed from the power of sin. And finally, our glorification, where we will one day see him as he is in glory, being freed finally from the presence of sin. And we concluded that our glorification, in the fullest sense of the term, is yet future that which we have yet to acquire possession of, as verse 14 states. Our second subheading that we looked at last week was the means of our inheritance, which was, quote, according to His purpose. He purposed this. And what God purposes will come to pass. God doesn't have his arena of influence and, and we have ours until we allow him in. That's not how this works. This is God's world. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will, as verse 11 states. And thirdly, the purpose of our inheritance which, with which he predestined us was ultimately for his glory. We who are the redeemed will bring praise to his glory, verse 12, where the lost will bring weeping and gnashing of teeth in response to his glory. And today we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Let's see here. Oh, there we go. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Let's read that. <clears throat> it states this, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And if I were to give a title to this text, in my attempt by the grace of God to rightly divide the word of truth, it would be in a long Puritan style, in a Puritan style title, would call it God Himself 
as the pledge of glory for the saints. God himself as the pledge of glory for the saints. And the three headings would be as such. One, the people to whom the pledge is for. Two, the the vehicle of which the pledge was and is applied. And three, what the result of the pledge made and fulfilled is. Now diving right into the deep, into the heart of the text this morning, what is the pledge, this pledge of glory that Scripture speaks of? What is it? As stated earlier, we talked about as a result of being in Him, being in Christ, we, that is the saints and, and Paul to whom he was referring to, quote, have, past tense, obtained an inheritance in verse 11. But here in verse 14, it appears we have not yet acquired possession of it. What is that exactly? It's the saints' glorification, freedom from the presence of sin, the third tense of our salvation is said earlier. If you remember last time, we noted that this is not really that difficult a concept to grasp in reconciling these two verses, as we can be the recipient of an earthly inheritance on paper, a type of down payment which states that the inheritance is presently ours, but it but is not yet ours in the fullest sense of the meaning. If we are in Christ, and we'll look again at how one is to be found and remain in Christ from the text this morning, I believe that God from Scripture wants the saints to know that this pledge of glorification is much greater than a human contract that can be broken. So much so that the saints' glorification in other texts, in other areas of Scripture, places our glorification in past tense terms as being a done deal. Romans 8.30 states this, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called, And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. Ephesians 1.20 and 2.6, which we'll look at more closely in the coming weeks, states that God, past tense, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A past tense occurrence, which is a present spiritual reality for the saints. But if that were not enough, the pledge of glory, or our glorification, is the third person of the Trinity the Holy Spirit, God Himself. 
in Acts 5, 1 to 11, you don't need to turn there. If you remember, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. Verse 4, Peter said, You have not lied to people, but to God. Before Ananias dropped dead at the apostles' feet and soon after Sapphira for doing so. God, the Holy Spirit, He is the guarantee, as the Greek term adabon suggests, or as we find in the Strong's Concordance more precisely, He is the, quote, deposit which guarantees, unquote. The down payment, or as stated, the pledge, or the, quote, earnest of our inheritance, as the King James puts it, that we are sealed with. One of the most memorable clips I've seen from a preacher named Vodi Bakum. I'm sure some of you are aware. I know you guys are. Um, he was explaining this text and what an earnest money contract is. <clears throat> that is when you quote, and this is his words, come to a piece of property and you say, I intend to buy this piece of property. Here is a contract and a check. He goes on to say, the check is my earnest money. If you sign the, uh, the other part of this contract, this check is yours and it's symbolic of the rest of the money that I will bring with me at closing. If I do not bring the rest of the money with me at closing, you get to keep your property and my earnest money. Vodi goes on to ask, what does God put up as earnest money on your salvation. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which means, he continues, if he doesn't show up on closing day, he loses the third person of the Trinity, which meant the only way you can stop being a Christian is if he stops being God. Unquote. God ceasing to be God is never going to happen. He cannot deny himself. He cannot be separated from himself. If you are truly in Christ, you are secure. He will by no means cast you out, as John 6.37 states. Now, there's an idea out there that if we ourselves don't maintain our salvation to the end, we will lose our salvation. You're going to see it out there. <clears throat> I think it's 
that it's important to address one of the texts that is used to support this claim. Let's turn to Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3, towards the back of the Bible, a little further. Right, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It states this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. And we are in his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, verse 6 is often read, or at least interpreted as, quote, and we will be his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That is how this is read And understood by such as those who believe you can lose your salvation. That if you fail to maintain your salvation through good works or believing, etc., to the very end, you you will lose your salvation. But that's not what the passage is saying at all. It states, we are presently his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we do not hold on to our confidence to the end, it means we are presently, right now, not his house. That is to say, if you fail to persevere as a Christian to the end, You were never saved to begin with. As 1 John 2.19 states, they went out from us because they were never of us. Friends, you are not what keeps you. God the Holy Spirit is what keeps you. We are sealed by Him until we acquire possession of our inheritance. Again, God cannot deny himself. But this brings up another monster that I've seen in the likes of the Duluth Bible Church, at least in the past that I've seen and heard. 
that would say something in, on the lines of, quote, well, since we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until glorification, until we see Jesus face to face, and we can't lose our salvation, I can live any kind of lifestyle I want. And I'm still going to heaven. But as 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 and Romans 6, 1-2 explains, if someone professes Christ, yet is living a lifestyle of sin, that is, sin is their practice, they are a walking contradiction. There's no such thing. They're deceiving themselves and thinking they are truly a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been transformed by God into a new creation who now delights in the law of God, who now flees sin instead of embracing sin. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Born-again believers are sealed or secured, like the Greek term suggests, with God the Holy Spirit. God is the one who keeps us till we see Christ face to face in glory, not our good deeds. He himself is the pledge of glory. Now this touches on the first of three headings. Number one, the people to whom this pledge of glory is for. Now this should not be a mystery uh, if you've been paying attention to the sermons prior. It is for those in him. Ephesians 1.13, in Christ, those born again, those who are new creations by the hand of God. This is not made, this is not for a self-made people, a self-made moral people. That's not who it's for. There are many, just as in Jesus' day, such as the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27, quote, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, unquote. Such is the self-made man. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who was relying on his own righteousness, thinking, thanking God, that he was not like other sinful men, extortioners or robbers, as the NIV says, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, he says in verse 11. This man did not go home justified or declared righteous before God for such a lifestyle. There's going to be many in hell for eternity that were good moral people outwardly. Yes, even many who profess to do good works in Jesus' name, who call Jesus Lord, as Matthew 7, 21-23 says. 
And there will be many imperfect, sinful, weak people who will spend eternity with Christ who relies solely on the mercy of God. Like the tax collector in Luke 18, juxtaposing the Pharisee, who rather stood far off in shame, who, would, who, who wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those who have humbled themselves before God as a sinner in need of the mercy of God, who are in Him, in Christ, Jesus, who is the mercy of God, will go home declared righteous before God. Which brings us to our next heading of three, number two, the vehicle of which the pledge of glory was and is applied. This is not a universal, passive application to all mankind where everyone's going to a better place now. No, there is a hearing. There's a hearing and a believing of the gospel that must take place. Let's read Ephesians 1.13. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now there is a type of hearing where hearing is of no benefit at all. James, as it relates to the hearing of, hearing of the word, explains the self-deception that can take place when hearing uh, does not produce action or obedience to the Word. Let's turn to James 1. It's just after Hebrews. Again, we're talking about the self-deception that can take place when hearing does not produce action or obedience to the Word. Let's read verses 19 through 25 of James 1. It says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget, forgets what he was like." But the one who looks into the perfect law, 
the law of liberty and perseveres, being no, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Another illustration of the consequences of being a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word can be found in Luke 13. Let's turn there. Luke 13. We're going to look at verses 22 to 30. <clears throat> it says this, He went on his way, Jesus, through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold... Some who are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. <clears throat> well, the context is speaking of the, uh, the Pharisees, Sadducees. You know, we've heard you teach in our streets. We've heard you. But they did not do what he commanded of them. They did not quote, enter through the narrow door. Christ, who is that door, as John 10, 7 says. And we must keep in mind regarding this, they were doing exactly what they wanted. They wanted the benefits of the master, but not the master himself. Another example of hearing the word and not doing the word that leads to self-deception can be found in Luke 6.46. You don't need to turn there. Where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? So there's a type of hearing that can take place that says, Yeah, I hear you, but I don't believe you to the point of doing what you say. And speaking of believing, as the saints, as the saints in Ephesians one thirteen, 
heard and believed the gospel before the Holy Spirit appropriated himself as the seal, the earnest or pledge of the inheritance of glory. Is there a believing or a faith in God that also fails to produce obedience or a doing what he says? Let's turn to James 2.19. Actually, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to turn there and read it. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to read it quickly here. James 2.19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Oh, I'm sorry, wait. 2.19? Oh, I'm sorry, I was reading 1.19. 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there is a belief in God that even the demons can claim to have, yet they remain in rebellion. Like many in our day, professing Christ with their lips, but their heart is far from Him, as Matthew 15.8 says. They remain in sin. That is... They remain living in a lifestyle of sin. They remain in unbelief or a type of demon belief that produces no change, no good works as fruit of true saving faith wrought by the mercy of God on their lives. Back in our text in Ephesians 1, uh, as, as stated earlier, we are to truly hear and believe the gospel. But what is the gospel? I'm going to read Ephesians 1.13 again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We can see that the word of truth, which is the gospel or good news of your salvation, that we are to hear in verse 13 is Jesus Christ. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, identified as Him in the same verse that we are to believe. Jesus Christ is the word of truth made flesh. Jesus Christ, the word of God, is the gospel, the good news. Now if we, if we expand on this, I'd point you to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 of which Paul states the gospel heard and believed or received is, quote, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This verses three to four states. If we broke that down further, we could look at Romans chapter one through four divided into four main points. We are created by God and accountable to him. We have all sinned against God and are worthy of his wrath in hell forever. Three, the solution is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And four, the application is by faith, believing slash relying on Christ alone, turning from sin. There are a few verses among many to summarize these points, which can be broken down further. <clears throat> Let's turn to Romans 1. I'm going to look at verses 8, 18 through 20. Eighteen through twenty, Romans one says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For this for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made in the things that have been made so they are without excuse <clears throat> man is accountable to god our creator god has made his quote eternal power and divine nature evident to man that as a result man is without excuse Man can't, without hypocrisy, say he doesn't know God exists. Man can't say he doesn't know he's, quote, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, unquote, according to these verses. There's no excuse. Man can give God, of whom he must give an account for his sin. But this touches a lot closer to home than men out there or the really bad ones. <clears throat> if we turn to Romans 3, just a couple pages. 10 through 12, it says this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There is none righteous. None, including you or I. 
not even one. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, you and I, and fall short of the glory of God. This poses a problem. We are sinners that will give an account to God whose, quote, wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 1.18. The good news doesn't make sense if there's no bad news. So what's the remedy? Let's read Romans 3, 21 through 26 in full. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that word atonement in those verses or propitiation in the King James Version in verse 25 can mean appease, Or make amends. God Himself presented Jesus Christ through the shedding of His blood to appease God's wrath for your sin. It pleased God to crush Him, as Isaiah 53 states, that He might declare you righteous in raising Jesus from the grave, as Romans 4.25 states, by what? By God's grace through faith in Jesus. By hearing and believing the gospel, the good news of Christ. Is your hope truly in Christ alone? For that person along with being freed from the guilt of sin and the power of sin, the Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance of glory when we are freed from the presence of sin. If you're not convinced your hope is in Christ alone, repent and be baptized today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And join a, the chorus of the saints in quote pray in the praise of His glory. The result of the pledge made and fulfilled our third heading. And there's no need to further enumerate on that, other than to proclaim glory to God in the highest for what He's done for us. Let's pray.